0: I wonder if a thought like this has ever popped into your head. Uh, maybe not exactly like this, uh, but something along the lines of, go on, do it. Just, just, sin, just sin, just that little bit. You, you know, Do that thing that you know is wrong, but you know that you really, really want to because it's going to feel so good. Uh, and you sort of start down this train of thought. And then maybe the thought pops into your mind, actually, uh, because I trust in Jesus, it really doesn't matter how I live because God's going to forgive me anyway. I wonder if you ever have that train of thought pop into your mind. I certainly have that train of thought pop into my mind. And that's the, the kind of sentiment, the, the kind of attitude uh, that's behind the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Have a look there in verse 1. Paul says there, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace May increase in in asking this question. Uh, Paul's really anticipating a particular objection that's behind the question, and the objection is that the gospel of God's wonderful grace that he's just been unpacking in the previous chapters—the uh, gospel that God accepts us, He declares us to be right with Him—not because of what we do and our works, but because of what Christ has done and, and His works—that gospel of God's grace produces immorality. That's the objection. The gospel of God's grace produces immorality because it offers absolutely no incentive for doing and being good. Remember the context of the end of chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back to chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Paul said there, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace abounded, Paul says. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see what Paul's saying? Where sin increases, God's grace just increases all the more. So perhaps you can imagine someone thinking, so uh, uh, let me get this straight. You're saying that if I keep on sinning, God's going to keep on forgiving And in fact, there's a sense in which if I sin, I'm kind of doing God a favour, aren't I? Because I'm giving him another opportunity to show just how amazing his grace is. You know, my sin increases and God's grace increases and it's just one big happy family. I sin, God shows grace and he's glorified. That's the objection that Paul's addressing in in this uh, in Romans chapter six verse one, this gospel of grace offers no incentive for doing good. Surely this objector says, if God really wanted to people to be good, uh, he would have set up a religion based on law. He would have said, here's a particular standard, here's a set of rules that you have to obey, and if you obey them, then maybe I'll accept you. But then, people would have had a real incentive for being good, wouldn't they? They would have known that they had to keep sacrificing and giving and serving and obeying and then maybe then if things turned out right on the day of judgment, the good deeds outweighed the bad deeds, maybe then God might accept them. Right, that's a great big stick hanging over your life and that kind of fear and guilt and shame, that's what would really motivate you to be good. Under a religion of law, there's real incentive for being good, but Paul's just spent a couple of chapters unpacking how God in Christ has set up this religion of grace. A religion that that explains that we can only be accepted uh, by God, declared innocent in his sight, justified, uh, not by faith in ourselves and our works, not by uh, doing enough good deeds to earn God's acceptance, but by putting our faith solely in Christ and in his works. It's God's amazing grace, a free gift of salvation. But Paul knows anyone who's really serious about people being moral people who who have really serious moral principles, people uh, who are are really uh, keen on people being good and doing good, anyone who's wired like that will understand that this message of God's abounding abounding grace is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous message. At least that's what they think. Because surely it just gives people permission to sin. They can do whatever they want. If they trust in Jesus, God's going to forgive them anyway. That's the basic idea. That sort of message will never lead people to be good. It'll just lead them to continue in sin, this person says. That's the objection in verse 1. Look in verse 2. How does Paul answer the objection? By no means, he says. Should we just continue in sin if we put our faith in Christ? By no means. Literally, let this never be the case. That's what by no means means. It's really... It's really unthinkable to Paul, just just incomprehensible that someone who has honestly believed, put their faith in this message of God's grace, it's unthinkable that that person would think it would be appropriate for them to continue on in habitual sin as if nothing had changed in their life. But Why, why is that unthinkable? Why does he say, by no means? Well, look at the rest of verse 2. He says, For we as Christians have died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? What does Paul mean when he says Christians have died to sin? Well, it's good of Paul. That's what he goes on to explain in verses 3 to 11. Have a look there in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Uh, we were therefore buried with him uh, through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, so really the, the key idea in these verses uh, is union with Christ, being united with Christ, Paul's saying that by faith, uh, Christians have been brought into this deep spiritual connection with Christ. Christians are united with Christ. They're in union with Christ uh, to such an extent that if you're a Christian, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened to Christ happened to you. That's what Paul's saying. What happened to Christ happened to you. Christ died, you died. Christ was buried, you were buried. Christ was raised, you were raised because you're united with Christ, by faith in him, what happened to Christ happened to you. That's the basic idea Is going. So, uh, and he's, uh, the implication of that, being united with Christ by faith, Paul says, your old life is dead. Your old life that was primarily driven by self-centered desires rather than God-centered desires. Your life that was uh, dominated by your sin rather than by God's grace your life that was dominated by slavery rather than freedom, that life, Paul says, is dead and buried with Christ by faith in him. So now, spiritually speaking, you've been raised with Christ, filled with his spirit, empowered to live a new life. Uh, And you notice that Paul mentions baptism here. We had some baptisms yesterday. uh, And he speaks about baptism because he's saying that Christian baptism is like a signpost to this change that's happened in the life of a Christian. Baptism is an outward physical sign of the wonderful truth that when someone puts their faith in Christ, they're filled with God's Spirit and by the power of His Spirit. We heard this yesterday if you're at the baptism service. Read Ezekiel chapter 36. By the power of God's Spirit, the old sinful heart is completely washed clean, purified by God's Spirit, and now God's Spirit is in their heart, empowering them to live in a new way. That's the change that Paul's saying is here. The person has been baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. So the old is gone and the new has come. The old has died with Christ by faith in him, and the new has come, empowered by His Holy Spirit. And so, if you're united with Christ by faith, you're you're in Christ. That's the the dominant New Testament way for speaking about what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian occurs maybe two or three times in the New Testament, but this idea of being in Christ, being in union with Christ, it, it dominates the New Testament. By faith in Him, you're in Him. You're united with Him. So, what happened to Christ happened to you. Now, some of you have seen this uh, illustration before uh, of a letter and an envelope. Right, I'm going to keep kind of going on about it and, until I see some of you guys start, uh, start using it in, in how you teach and explain the idea of being in Christ. So if you want me to stop using this illustration, uh, just you know, start using it in your Bible study. But uh, So the idea is, right, because the letter is in the envelope, we all know that what happens to the envelope happens to the letter. That's how it works, isn't it? If we post the envelope, we post the letter. If you drop the envelope, you drop the letter. If you step on the envelope, you step on the letter. If I crush the envelope, I crush the letter. Because the letter is in the envelope, what happens to the envelope happens to the letter. And that's what, that's what the New Testament says about those who are in Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are united with Christ, what happened to Christ happens to you. Christ died, you died, Paul says. Christ was buried, you were buried. Christ was raised, you were raised. You see the implication of this? By no means, it's just unthinkable for Paul that someone who is in Christ and has had this dramatic spiritual transformation happen in their life, how could a person like that continue on in habitual sin as if absolutely nothing has happened? In Christ, Paul says, you died to sin. But that does raise a question. What exactly does Paul mean when he says Christians have died to sin? Well, look in verse 6. Paul says, for we know that our old self, Uh, That word there is literally uh, the word anthropos, it's where we get the, you know, anthropology, if you've heard that before, so it's just saying, uh, we know that our old person, uh, other older translations used to say, uh, the very un-PC thing, the old man, right, which which is not, of course, referring to your dad, uh, but it's referring to the old sinful self, right, The, the person that you used to be before you became a Christian, and Paul says that this old person, this old self, uh, look, uh, in the rest of the, uh, for we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. So that, uh, with the result that, the body uh, ruled by sin might be done away with. Well, you see, in verse 6, Paul's reinforcing what he's just said in verses 3 to 5 the old you that was controlled uh, and ruled by sin, that you is, it was crucified with Christ. That you has been done away with in Christ. So how can you keep living? Paul says, as if you're still ruled by sin. That you is uh, that you died with Christ. But in what sense did it die? Could still be tricky, isn't it? Uh, well, I, I think that is. Uh, uh, what does Paul mean when he when he says Christians have died to sin? There's at least three things that he doesn't mean. And it's really important to get these things. So the first thing he doesn't mean uh, is that Christians are never tempted. Right? So some people kind of have this kind of uh, slightly quirky logic. They're, they're like, well, my old self, uh, the sinful self, died with Christ. It's buried with Christ. Uh, so really, I, I can never really be tempted. Because how's Satan going to tempt a corpse? Like it's unresponsive. It's dead and buried with Christ. Therefore, the logic says, uh, Christians can never be tempted. But that's not really what the Bible teaches uh, about the, old, uh, the sinful uh, flesh. So uh, Galatians 5, for example, uh, Paul himself, again, is teaching, uh, and he talks about the ongoing struggle in the life of a Christian between the old self, the sinful flesh, and the spirit. Uh, 1 Peter 2 talks about uh, sinful desires that still wage war against our souls. So Paul is not saying here uh, that uh, when he says Christians have died to sin, he's not saying that Christians can't be tempted. Uh, And equally, he's not saying that Christians can't sin. You know, I died to sin and therefore I've reached this state of sinless perfection. By the power of God's Spirit, I just go on living in His ways every moment of every day. Uh, From time to time, you might come across someone who claims to have Reached a state of sinless perfection, maybe even a movement of people. There, there are some kind of wacky kind of cults of Christianity. Um, The British uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon uh, once was having lunch uh, with a Christian leader uh, who was. Kind of relating how God and His grace had brought him to this wonderful state of sinless perfection, uh, and Spurgeon was kind of you know, wriggling in his seat and feeling quite frustrated by this and the you other. Know, this is a lot of rubbish. Uh, and so, as the story goes, he, he picked up a water jar that was on the table uh, and just chucked it over this guy's head. Uh, and of course, you can imagine that the, the kind of uh, profanities or you know, or like cursing kind of started coming out of the guy's mouth. Uh, and Spurgeon said, it's good to know that the old man uh, wasn't actually dead, but just asleep uh, and needed to be woken up, you see. But when Paul says Christians have died to sin, he's not saying that we can't sin. He's not saying it's impossible for Christians to sin. So he's not saying we can't be tempted. He's not saying we can't sin. And third, uh, he's not talking about a a gradual process. You know, something that that we've got to aim for. You you might know there are parts of the New Testament that speak about the need for Christians to put sin to death, to crucify the flesh. Galatians 5, I mentioned it before, uh, does talk about that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, is it? He's talking about a definitive once-off event when christians by faith in christ have died to sin this is a one-off event that leads to the ongoing process so that's what paul doesn't mean when he talks about christians being uh, having died to sin what does he mean i think the key is at the end of verse 6 into verse 7 look at the end of verse 6 into verse 7 for we know Uh, Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ uh, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, uh, that, that's kind of a a purpose, a purpose that in order that we should no longer be slaves to sin uh, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So so when Paul says Christians have died to sin, he's saying they've died to sin uh, in the sense that we've been set free from the power of sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin, no longer imprisoned by sin. Uh, so if you uh, look at this uh, wonderful picture that Isabel's drawn from some scribbles that I uh, sent her uh, a snapshot of, uh, you've, got this, uh, you've got this person uh, who's enslaved by sin. You see sin, clearly that's sin up there, because he's got an arrow saying he's sin. right? The, the person is imprisoned by sin, enslaved by sin. Sin is their master, as it were. And of course, this is a picture of sinful humanity apart from Christ. We read about this in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 3, verse 20. Uh, sinful humanity uh, wasn't just doing sinful things, Paul said, uh, but sinful humanity was enslaved to sin under the power, the reign of sin, the rule of sin. Uh, some of you here, you say, well, I'm not a Christian, and I would say I'm not enslaved to anything. Certainly not enslaved to some cartoon figure of sin. You know, I'm, I'm free. In fact, I'm free to be as good as I want. I just have to be more disciplined. just have to pull my socks up and try a bit harder. And that's what lots of people think. So why don't you just do that? Just do that tomorrow. Just wake up tomorrow and decide to be good. Decide to be good, uh, not just when everything's going well, but uh, when you've had a bad night and the kids haven't slept well and and you're tired and irritable. Decide to be good every moment of every day. Just do it, because you're free, right? I think you'll soon discover that you're not as free to be good as you realize, as you thought. It's only when you start trying to take off the chains of sin that you realize that you're actually enslaved to sin. And of course, the only way to escape this prison of sin is to pay the penalty for your sins. We heard that in the kids' talk. What's the penalty for sins? The penalty for sins is death. It's there at the top of the picture. Why is it death? Because if you choose to, uh, in your sin, uh, separate yourself from God, the source of all life, then the consequence of that is spiritual death now and physical death later. You can't cut yourself off from the source of all life and escape the punishment of death. So how do we escape this penalty of death? Well, that's what Paul's been explaining, right? If you've been with us from Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 5, Paul's been explaining that it's Christ's death on the cross that pays the penalty for our sins, the penalty of death. So that if you're united with Christ by faith, God declares that Christ's death is your death. In God's heavenly court, that is the verdict. The penalty for your sins has been paid, so you are set free from the power of sin. So if you look at this second picture that Isabel's drawn, if we can flick over to the second picture. Uh, you'll see that the old Jew that was imprisoned by sin has died with Christ on the cross. That's where we've got the cross kind of central in the picture uh, because the penalty for sin has been paid. The penalty of death has been paid. So the power of sin has been broken. You're no longer enslaved or imprisoned by sin. You've been set free from sin. Uh, and that's why sin's so angry in the picture. You okay? see that? Because sin knows that he, he's no longer got power over you. His power over you has indeed been broken, right? but Because uh, the only power that sin ever held over you was death, and Christ already paid that penalty in your place. Christians have died to sin in the sense the, in the sense that we've been set free from sin. right The penalty for sin has been paid, so the power of sin has been broken. And I'm just going to whiz through verses 8 to 10. Uh, In many ways, they're kind of restating things that Paul's already said. So I'm going to whiz through those verses, and then we'll get to the implications at the end of the passage. Uh, Verse 8 uh, is a restatement of verse 5. Really have a look in verse 8. Paul says, now if we died with Christ, which we did by faith, uh, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, the difference here, I, I think, is that this live, uh, the earlier live, uh, walking in newness of life, uh, that, that was talking about uh, the, the spiritual resurrection that happens now by faith in Christ, so that we have power uh, to, to live in a new way right now. Uh, this live is talking about the, resurre- the physical resurrection that will happen when Jesus returns. Uh, so Paul's saying that the, when Christ returns, uh, we'll be physically raised to, to, to be, uh, like him uh, to live with God forever. We'll live with him. And in verse nine he says we can be really sure of this hope because we know that since Christ was raised from the dead he cannot die again. By like Christ was raised from the dead, you know, in the gospels you read A Lazarus was raised from the dead wonderful miracle. But he died again, right? But Christ was raised from the dead to never die again. And Paul says, if you're united with Christ by faith, you too will be raised from the dead to never die again. Why? Why was Christ raised from the dead to never die again? Well, because death no longer has mastery over him, Paul says. Why doesn't it have mastery over him? Verse 10, uh, for the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ doesn't need to die anymore, Paul says, because he died once and for all to pay the full penalty for all sins on the cross. So now the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ has been raised. He's ascended to the right hand of God, his Father in heaven, where he lives, he's alive. And that's, what, that's what's in store for us, for those who are in him. So what are the implications of all this? I think Paul gives three implications uh, in verses 11 to 14. Three. Uh, The first in verse 11 uh, is that we have to recognize something. Recognize the spiritual reality that in Christ you are dead to sin and alive to God. Look at verse 11. In the same way, Paul says, count yourselves dead to sin uh, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Some people read, uh, count yourselves dead dead to sin there. Uh, And they think that what Paul's saying is, oh, I see. I've got to believe that I'm dead to sin, even though I'm not. You know, he's kind of like, this is the power of positive thinking. And I said, that's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying, you've got to bring your thinking in line with the reality of God's heavenly court, his throne room. Uh, And in God's throne room, the objective reality is that Christ's death has been counted as your death. And so in your life, you have to count that to be the case. You have to recognize that to be the case. Every moment of every day, you have to tell yourself, I am dead to sin, I am free from sin, and so I'm free to live for God and not for sin any longer. You have to count that, you have to recognize that in the hustle and bustle of life when sin tries to bully you around. You count yourself dead to sin because that's the reality In God's heavenly court. Recognize the spiritual reality that in Christ you are dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, And so second, Paul says, if you're alive to God, which you are, uh, then you should offer yourself to God, not to sin. Look in verse uh, 12. Therefore, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body uh, so that you obey its evil desires. I do, not offer, I do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. You see what Paul's saying? Don't don't live as if sin still has power over you, as if sin reigns over you as your master. The circumstances have changed, Paul says. Don't offer yourself to sin, uh, don't uh, offer yourself up to sin and uh, use me in the world to do wickedness, Paul says. No, rather... Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Through faith in Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. And so regularly, every day, you have to offer yourself to God. Please God. In this situation, in this conversation, in this class, in this uh, situation in my workplace, as I try to parent my pain in the neck child, help me to offer myself to you and not to sin. Offer every part of myself to you. Offer my imagination to you. Offer my heart to you. Offer my hands to you. Offer yourself to God, Paul says, not to sin. So if you look at this last picture that Isabel's drawn... Uh, It's clear that uh, even though through Christ's death on the cross, uh, the penalty for sin has been paid. We know that. Uh, And the power of sin has been broken. You're free. But it's not like sin is no longer present. Third P. Sin is still present in the life of the Christian. Sin can still cry out to you at any moment of any day and say, Go on, do it. Go on, sin. You know you want to. It'll feel good. And God's going to forgive you anyway, so who cares? And because you're so used to listening to sin, he was your master for your whole life before you became a Christian, well, you'll kind of feel like you can't say no to sin. But in Christ, you do have the power to say no to sin, don't you? Because sin, what's sin going to say to you? What's the worst thing sin can say? If you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. You we say, well, what, you know, who cares? In Christ, I already died. You know, you've know, you taken away sin's best weapon. Sin ha- holds no power over you. So you can say, oh, I won't listen to you anymore. I refuse to continue in sin. We can take that picture down. Uh, a British uh, Bible teacher named Christopher Ash uh, has, a, 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 I think, a helpful picture of what it what it looks like when Christians uh, continue in sin. Uh, The picture is of a uh, a magnificent kind of wedge-tailed eagle. If you can imagine a a massive wedge-tailed eagle. Uh, And somehow, someone's got hold of this wedge-tailed eagle uh, and they've chained it to a post. So this magnificent bird that's designed to spread its wings and soar up in the sky uh, just goes round and round this post endlessly. Uh, And people come to look at the bird uh, and it's just in misery. It just goes round and round the post. Then one day, a new owner comes along, and, it desi- and this new owner decides to break the chains and set this eagle free. Uh, so the crowds are thinking, oh, this is marvelous. We're finally going to see the bird spread its wings and soar in the sky. But what does the eagle do? It keeps going round and round the post. Round and round the post. It's sad, isn't it? And that's what it's like when Christians continue in sin as if nothing's changed. But the power of sin has been broken. The chains have been broken. So Paul says, stop living as if you're enslaved to sin. He's not saying it's impossible for you to sin. Clearly it is. Sin tempts us all the time and often we will give in. And he's not saying that God won't forgive us if we sin. He said at the end of chapter 5, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. God's grace to you in Christ abounds over any sin. If you would humbly come and confess your sin to him. But Paul is saying that it just doesn't make sense for you to continue in sin in a habitual, enslaved way. But Why would you keep listening to the voice of sin, your old master, whose orders only ever brought misery and death to your life? And when you could start listening to the voice of Christ, your new master, why would you keep listening to sin? Listen to Christ, your new master, the one who gave up his life to set you free. Now, of course, sometimes we do listen to sin. We offer ourselves to sin rather than to God. So what is it that's going to empower us increasingly, bit by bit, over time, to give ourselves to God rather than to sin? I think this is verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, What empowers you is living under the power of God's grace. For sin, Paul says, shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So you see how we've kind of come a full circle from verse 1, right? Remember verse 1, the objection was, living under God's grace will only motivate you to sin. And in verse 14, Paul says, no, 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 you got it wrong. It's the opposite. Living under God's grace will motivate you to say no to sin and live a life of, fully, uh, live a life of doing good. What does that mean? As Christians, uh, we don't do good uh, because God's got a great big stick. And we don't do good uh, primarily because we're under the power of God's law. And we're terrified that if we don't do good, if we break God's law, God's going to smack down on us. That's not why we do good. We do good uh, because we live under the power of God's grace. And so our doing good uh, is filled with joy and thanks because we know that Christ has already paid the full penalty for all of our breaking of God's law. The penalty for sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. And so we are free to do good. We're not motivated by guilt and fear and shame to do good because we've got a much more powerful motivation. The motivation uh, of living under God's free and unconditional love. His grace. And some of you go, well, that's just soft. That's just soft. You know, like, like, uh, How's that ever going to motivate anyone to be really good? You need the threat of judgment and condemnation to get people to be good. But actually, this is how all relationships work. If you're married or in a significant friendship, I'll talk about Gabby and I. I'm not motivated to be faithful to Gabby or to please her or to do good to her because I'm terrified that she's going to reject me. I'm motivated to do those things because I'm blown away that she ever accepted me. That's the most powerful motivation, isn't it? Being secure in someone's love despite your sin, despite your weakness, despite your failure, and you just think, Oh, I just want to do what pleases this person. So also with Christians. Not motivated to be faithful to God, to please him, to say no to sin and yes to him because we're terrified that he's going to reject us. That's a religion based on law. And Paul says we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. We're motivated to do all those things, to, to do good and please God because we're blown away that he ever accepted us by faith in Christ. It's his amazing grace, his free and unconditional love that empowers us to do good in the world. It's what Paul says in Titus 2. Read Titus 2. You know, he says, It's God's grace that teaches us to say no to sin and to live good lives in the world. Now, we don't have time to, to fully unpack that, but, but in God's grace, what? In God's grace, uh, He loved us. So we live lives of loving others. In God's grace, he blessed us, so we seek to bless others. In God's grace, he forgave us, so we seek to forgive others. He served us, so we seek to serve others. He's incredibly generous to us, so we seek to be generous to others. He does good to us, so we do good to others. The objection, live under the power of God's grace and you'll do no good in the world. But the truth is, live under the power of God's grace and you'll do much good in the world. You'll be empowered by God's grace uh, to to love him uh, and to love your neighbours. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word. Uh, In a culture that uh, longs for freedom and has all sorts of false ideas of how that freedom might be found, uh, we thank you that the gospel promises us real freedom. We thank you that in Christ the penalty for all our sins has been paid uh, and the power of sin has been broken. We thank you that we don't just have to keep going back to sin as if sin is still our master, but we do have power in him by the power of your spirit to live in a new and different way. Help us, Father, uh, for those of us who are in Christ to stop saying yes to sin. Help us to not be bullied around by sin, but to say no to sin and to yes uh, to our Lord Jesus, our new master who gave his life uh, to pay the costs to set us free from sin. Uh, We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.